Well, it's a great pleasure to be with you. We love the work of this church. I love your pastor and his wife. We have been friends for a long time. I did do something here a number of years ago, and it's good to be back. Uh, and we also want to thank you on behalf of the seminary for your uh, support for our work as well, both in your prayers and also uh, in your being a congregation that uh, supports us uh, financially. We're going to look at uh, creation positively tonight, and then tomorrow morning we will have uh, two sections of critique dealing with uh, what's going on, particularly in uh, Reformed churches today. And then the fourth lecture at Sunday school will go back to a positive, uh, what rest of the Bible says. I think that's one of the uh, things that's really been left out in the discussion today of Scripture interprets Scripture. What does the rest of the Bible say? I think you'll be surprised about how much the rest of the Bible talks about the events and how it talks about the events of uh, Genesis uh, chapter 1. So we're going to go with a positive statement tonight. You know, when uh, banks first started dealing with uh, counterfeits, they would send their tellers to school uh, to learn to recognize uh, counterfeit money. Do you know what they did the whole time they were at counterfeit school? They handled the real thing. If you're aware of the real thing, that's the best counter-argument to the counterfeits. And so we begin tonight by looking at the real thing, and then we'll conclude with that. Now, the other two things I'm going to do Sunday uh, in the uh, worship services, we'll be preaching two sermons from the end of Job on creation. And again, it's another place we see then how how the Bible looks at creation, but also some of the practical things in our lives uh, in realizing that God indeed is uh, the Creator. So tonight is the overview of Genesis chapter 1. Open your Bibles. I'm not a master of PowerPoint. Actually, Ken Ham's the one that got me started when I do a lot of material to use this because it does help you, I think, to... Uh, uh, digest a lot of material. There's no way I could get you through Genesis 1 just in one uh, message. And so I've chosen this overview approach. Um, and it accomplishes two things. In the first place, I think it will simply remind you of the very sound exegetical foundation for the position of the confession of faith that God made all things by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. But also, by doing this, I really lay a foundation and I can uh, much more quickly, uh, as we look at uh, some of the various uh, competing views, uh, simply remind you of what we saw here. Now, we'll just read the first five verses tonight as we start. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, And darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. 
And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. Let's pray again. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege that you give to us this weekend to come together and have fellowship in your word. We ask now that the Spirit who gave us these words will indeed illumine our understanding and help us to grasp the truths that you have here. For Christ's sake, amen. Now as we do the overview, I want us to consider in the first place uh, the basic assumptions that really every Christian should keep in mind as he approaches uh, uh, this area of truth as well as any other area of truth as well. And the first one is that the God who reveals himself in the Bible is the true God who created all things. Atheists are living on borrowed capital and we really cannot do science without a personal creator God who made and upholds all things. I'm just going to go through these assumptions very quickly. I know that we would agree surely on most of them, if not all of them. Second, the 66 books of the Bible are the inspired and fallible word of God, our only rule of faith and practice. Third, origins are beyond the scope of science. We can only get theories that are an attempt to explain what we observe. This is true of the non-believing scientist. It's also true of the believing scientist. And the great difference is the believing scientist um, has a platform of these first two assumptions. And his theories then must be consistent in the first place with what the Bible says and then as much as possible consistent with what he can observe. But since we only observe uh, the universe and the creation now, we have to postulate, theorize about origins. And this has been the great work of people like Answers in Genesis or the Creation Group in Atlanta or the Creation um, Institute started out in California. And they've become very mature in that work with a number of PhD scientists at every level of science that has to do or every type aspect of science that has to do with origins. I say that because some supposedly reputable people and if you read the McCool report you would have seen an article there by Bill Evans who teaches at Erskine that they're really these groups don't have any reputable scientists. Well, they have leading Ph.D. scientists to write peer review articles, which means they don't just throw them out there. They've been tested uh, as they put their articles uh, out there. Fourth assumption, faith is not inferior to empirical investigation. Of course, it's the big thing that uh, scientists throw at the Christian well, yours is a faith system, and ours is uh, an objective empirical system. And you can simply say, bah, to them. Every system is a faith system. That's why I've begun uh, with these assumptions. 
If you've been to the Creation Museum up there uh, north of uh, Louisville, um, in the uh, Sola Scriptura section, they uh, show a scientist who, uh, I think he's a, a geologist, and he's got the various things there. And he simply shows how um, you could come to the same things and interpret them absolutely diametrically on the basis of your assumptions. Everybody acts out of certain basic axioms. And regardless of what your professor tells you in the classroom, he's got faith system out of which he is operating. Faith is not um, inferior to empirical investigation. In fact, we know things in three ways. We uh, know things by observation. So there would be your empirical investigation. And that's the scientific method. Where you have a theory, you then test it in the laboratory, and you test it, and you test it, and you test it. And the more consistent um, are the findings, then the stronger becomes your theory. And observation, of course, is very important in doing science. But we also... Uh, well, so, so, for example, we know the sun is hot. We don't have to look at it to know it's hot. Uh, we know we can't look at it. And then there's testimony, though. Now, how many of you have been down in the southern hemisphere? All right. Uh, how many of you have seen the uh, Southern Cross? Okay. Um, there's a whole different set of constellations in the southern hemisphere. Now, when Roland comes back and he tells you about having seen uh, the Southern Cross when he was in Peru, he's a trustworthy man. You have no reason to doubt his testimony that there, is, there are different constellations in Peru. Because testimony from credible sources... What's so funny? <laughs> Well, nobody mocked. <laughs> so testimony from credible sources uh, is a proper way to know truth. And then there's reason. Now, reason is where we take that which is known by experience and that which we know by testimony, and we draw uh, conclusions based on those former two things. And that's also a proper way of knowing but you see, essential uh, to this then is um, faith. All of us bring religious presuppositions to the discussion of anything that we uh, discuss that's intellectual. And that which is known by reliable testimony is as valid as that which you learn by experimentation. In fact, in some ways, it's more valuable because if you've got the trustworthy person testifying to what he's seen, you don't have to go and test it yourself. So faith is a valid means of knowledge. It's simply the acceptance of testimony. If the source is reliable and qualified, there's no reason not to accept it. Now, a fifth presupposition. God in the Bible is a or the reliable witness to origins. And it is the intention of Genesis 1 to teach us that God directly and instantaneously created all things, how and in what order. 
Now the word intention is very important. Because one of the things that we hear is that, well, the Bible is not a textbook and God doesn't really intend to communicate to us in Genesis 1 um, any more than the fact that He is the Creator. Well, as we look at the chapter, you'll see He went to a great deal of trouble uh, to communicate to us simply the fact that He's a Creator and there's not much there about the order uh, that He followed. Six. Science, then, as I've already said, must operate within the walls on the foundation of revelation. The Bible's not a science textbook, although I think it was um, Perguto I just read, it maybe uh, was Van Til who said the Bible is a textbook on science. And by that, what he meant, when it speaks about science, uh, it is speaking with absolute perfection and accuracy. So the Bible is not a textbook in science or, or economics or many other things, but anything to which the Bible speaks, it speaks perfectly and infallibly. And that's where we begin to build our worldview. What does God have to say about this thing or that thing? And with respect to origins and science, what does God have to say? Now, general revelation is uh, very important, but it's not an equal form of revelation. This is the second error that we're hearing. I heard it a lot when I taught out on the West Coast. Now, general revelation, I don't want forgive me, I don't want to condescend on the one I don't want to assume. There's two types of revelation. There's general revelation, and there's special revelation. General revelation is that which God has given to all mankind through creation and providence. Special revelation is that which God has given to the church, 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, uh, in the Holy Scriptures. Now, both of those are the revelation of God. And Warfield, for example, is very clear in his doctrine, his book on inspiration, that general revelation is God's revelation, and to the degree that God has spoken through it, it also is infallible. But the problem is, as Paul teaches us in Romans 1, the natural man suppresses that revelation because he doesn't want to face the true God. And just as one can make interpretive mistakes about the Bible, it's much easier to make interpretive mistakes about general revelation. And so Calvin said that one must use the scriptures as the eyeglasses by which to read general revelation. So they're not equal. Special revelation always trumps general revelation even if at the particular time in our development in history we do not know the harmonization. For example, Gordon Clark gives this example of archaeology. Early on in archaeology, uh, non-believers would say that um, there was no such nation as this nation. There was no such thing as that in the Bible. And there was no counter historical or archaeological evidence at that point. But that's fine. The Bible said it. We believed it. But as research has gone on, time and again, that which the Bible says is then discovered uh, through uh, archaeological, geological work. So the Bible is always the eyeglasses. Whether or not we have um, 
empirical evidence uh, in the world at that particular time in our experience the Bible always is correct and so we then must build our constructs that are consistent with scripture so those are the five presuppositions uh, that we are going to uh, keep in mind uh, this weekend as we uh, work together the God who reveals himself the triune God is an atheist is only doing any kind of valid science on borrowed capital the 66 books of the Bible are the inspired and fallible word of God only in the faith and practice the origins are beyond the scope of science faith is not inferior to empirical investigation God in the Bible is a reliable witness and it's the intention of Genesis 1 to teach us that God directly and instantaneously created all things how and in what order and science must operate uh, within the walls of Revelation. So now we go to Genesis chapter 1-1 and since we go all the way through uh, 2-3. Come on. Decided not to cooperate. So, the overview of Genesis 1-1. The first two verses give us the uh, first act of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now, it's amazing how many questions are answered in this initial act of creation. It's much more packed uh, than we often realize. And really, uh, these two verses are the framework by which we understand the remainder of the account through Genesis 2, verse uh, 3. So here we see that God brought all things into existence out of nothing by his word. This is what, this is one phrase you ought to understand. It's creation ex nihilo. Creation from nothing. Now, as we read the rest of the chapter of Genesis chapter 1, we see, well, God made animals and man out of dirt, and he made these different things. Um, and so, obviously, he didn't make everything out of nothing. Well, he did when you realize that he made out of nothing and nothing's not even the absence of something nothing simply means God is and nothing else is God put together all of the building materials out of which he would make everything else in the creation so we read here that God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth this is the record of the first act of creation when there was only God. A number of things in this. In the beginning teaches us that God is eternal. Everything else has a beginning. In fact, this phrase in the beginning uh, in the Bible becomes uh, what we almost say was a technical 
prepositional phrase to talk about the difference of God's eternity and uh, men, time. Uh, Isaiah 40.21 Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? When were the foundations of the earth? They were in the beginning. The beginning here, this Hebrew word, Bereseeth, says that God is, everything else is created, God is eternal, everything else uh, is finite and time bound, and God at the split second of creation brought things into existence. It's the same phrase, isn't it, used in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was with God. He was God. He goes on to tell us that He is the Creator. And so we see here that God is the eternal God. We also know from this chapter uh, are the foundations given to us in this chapter that he is a triune God. The very word that's used here for God, the first name of God used in the Bible, Elohim, is in the plural. But it takes a singular verb. God is saying something. Every time it's used of him, it's in the plural with singular verbs. Now that's not teaching the Trinity, but it's laying a foundation. So you come to Genesis 1.26 and what do you read? And God said, let us make man in our image. He's not talking to angels because you're not made in the image of angels. He's not speaking with the royal we because God never in the Bible speaks with the royal we. You see, this is again an indicator And then in verse 2, whom do we find? We find the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep. Every time in the Old Testament, when the name, the Spirit of God is used, we're not talking about the power of God. We're talking about the third person of the Godhead. Now, the Savior is not mentioned by name, in Genesis chapter 1, but he is mentioned by work. In just a moment, we will see what are called the eight fiat um, acts of God in creation, and God said, let there be. When God speaks, God the Son is the spokesman. That's why John calls him the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word of God. And he goes on to tell us in verse 2 that all things were made by Him. And so, as New Testament Christians, you and I are reading Genesis chapter 1. God has told us a lot about Himself, hasn't He? He's the eternal, triune God who brought all things into existence by his own word. Things that he had planned in his decree. So remember your catechism. That the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. How does God execute his decrees? In his works of creation and providence. So God had eternally planned this. And then when God... uh, 
began this work of creation that was the execution of what he had eternally planned. Now in this first act of creation, um, not only uh, do we see the origin of all things from nothing, but in Genesis 1-1 we have described the creation of the highest heaven. God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, In the Old Testament, heaven, which is the place where God personally reveals his gracious presence. Now God is everywhere personally and God reveals himself differently in different places in different ways. But he created heaven on the very first act of creation to be the place where he would manifest his glory to his angels and to his saints. And I believe with the creation of the highest heaven, called the third heaven, for example, in the Old Testament, he also created the angels. We can't say dogmatically what day they were created. We know they were created before the creation was finished. But because in Job chapter 38, as we will see uh, Lord willing Sunday morning, uh, he created the angels and they sang then, as he did the rest of his works of creation, they were the eyewitnesses of creation. So Genesis 1.1, I believe, describes the first act of creation of the heavenly sphere, as well as God building the building materials out of which he was going to create everything else. Now there is some discussion. Is Genesis 1.1 a kind of summary statement of the chapter? Or was it the first work of day one? I take it as the first work of day one. Now there's no orthodoxy attached to either position. Uh, Bob Inc. and Bob Raymond both saw Bob Inc. as a um, kind of just a summary of the chapter. And uh, Rayburn uh, saw it as a... um, um, some time before uh, of the creation. But I believe that this is the very first thing that God did on day one. Now part of that is because of the very close relationship grammatically of verse two. Because now we're told he made the heavens and the earth and the focus now moves to earth. And why does it move to earth? Because the Bible is about redemption. And now we move to earth, the great theater of God's operation uh, on behalf of mankind. And so the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Now what we have here is the immediate result of creation of this sphere that uh, the Bible calls earth. The very first material thing, if we think of the highest heaven and the angels, uh, not as material things, the very first material thing that God made was the earth. And in this, every single thing that he would use for subsequent creation was there. 
all of the the scientific stuff of which I'm completely ignorant, but all of the gases, all the uh, uh, atoms, uh, everything necessary uh, to build uh, uh, solids and gases and electricity and light and all of these things, it's all there in this cauldron, kind of this bubbly cauldron. And I want you to notice the way that this cauldron is described it actually has some defects it's a dark watery mass with threefold deficit it's dark it's unfilled which means um, well as we read it in the Hebrew it um, formless and void formless means uninhabitable and void means absence of inhabitants. So we have this dark watery mass that was not fit for habitation and obviously then had no inhabitants to it. That's very important that you understand that that's the first thing that God did because the rest of the chapter addresses in a very orderly manner those three defects. So this is what God created. And the Holy Spirit, and what a beautiful insight of the Holy Spirit, is uh, hovering, and the word suggests uh, protecting and energizing, over it all, protecting it, holding it together. And as the Son will speak, the Spirit will then energize each specific thing spoken into existence by the Son. And then through the word of the Son, will continue actively to govern and hold that thing together. So not only did nothing ever exist apart from the word of God, nothing has any duration apart from the word of God. And so this, we see, is the very first thing then that God did and what the Spirit of God uh, was doing uh, over this uh, mass of material. And so again, we note the role of the triune God in creation. Now this leads us to the remainder of the work of the uh, six days as, as it's given to us in Genesis uh, chapter 1. And I want you to notice it's very important that we have here a two-fold structure. Now, tomorrow, I won't have to spend as much time addressing the issue. There is no tension between scheme and structure and chronology. In fact, what I want you to see tonight is that the structure makes perfectly good sense. It's logical. There's really no other way that God could have done this. And so in the first place, the material was organized in structure. Remember, we got this deficit. This watery mass is dark, uninhabitable, uninhabited. So days one through three, God, God makes the earth inhabitable. So the first four acts of God make the earth and actually all of the universe fit for its inhabitants. 
And then, days four through six, he puts the inhabitants into their place, again moving from the highest heavens to the highest creature, and that is man created um, in the image of God. So there's a structure, but what shapes the structure is the, de- the, the deficit. You see that? God gives it to us. I mean, I, I, when I say deficit, I don't get this wrong. We're not saying that God made a mistake. This was the orderly way that God created and the very first material thing was this dark, watery, uninhabitable, uninhabited mass. The rest of Genesis 1 very logically and orderly brings it to a level of habitation. And every one of those things is necessary. And they're necessary in the order that he creates them. And then he brings uh, the living inhabitants as well. So that's one of the structures. Now, what we're going to do tonight is see that each day also is described uh, with a structure. And if you've spent much time reading Genesis 1, it begins to jump out at you that there is a pattern here. And the pattern makes perfectly good sense. This was uh, God's record initially given to a uh, an oral culture it was not written in scripture until Moses would write it um, millennia later and so uh, there's a structure we have the act of creation in each of the days we have the declaration of fulfillment we have the statement of purpose the expression of delight the record of time and those Structure elements is how the Holy Spirit structures the revelatory account of each of the days. So this is what we're going to do to give you the overview of Genesis uh, chapter 1. Now with the work of creation, there are two expressions. There's the creative word, and that is accompanied with a creative act. The creative word, the eight fiat acts by which God created. So the word personified is the creator. He spoke all things into existence. Day one, he said, let there be light. Day two, he said, let there be a firmament. He said, day three, let there be dry land separated from the water. Let there be vegetation. On day four, let there be luminaries. On day five, let there be fish and fowl. On day six, let there be animals. And with man, the spoken word is changed so that we understand the uniqueness of man. Let us make man in our image. And so you see here that he's organized the days under these um, uh, creative uh, works, words, And there's an emphasis then on the power of God creating, speaking, and bringing into existence that which was not. So ex nihilo can refer to the material, but it also can refer simply to that which was not. Before God commanded it into existence, it wasn't. That also 
uh, reminds us, and Paul does this in Second Corinthians chapter four. That's the beauty of the Spirit working in the gospel. It's the only reason that we sit here tonight as converted people, because in our inveterate blindness, deadness, and corruption, Christ the Prophet by the Spirit spoke into the lives of each one of us that there be light and life and we were born again in the mother's womb as an infant later in life that word had to be spoken by Christ through the power of the Spirit if you're a Christian and one of the things we see in creation is the wonderful parallels between God's work in creation and God's work in the new creation the application of redemption alright then there's the creative act you see as I said the time you finish this chapter there's only one impression that a non-prejudiced reader could have and that is that God made things by his word in this very special manner he wasn't content simply to to speak the eight words four words on days one through three four words on days four through six each word then is accompanied with an act of God or the word is explained further by an act of God and there are three or four words used primarily made separated created and with separated we would also put the word gathered And so, uh, on day one, he spoke light into existence and then separated the light from the darkness. On day two, he made the firmament. On day three, he gathered the waters and separated them from the dry land. And uh, also on day three, he brought forth, he generated uh, from the earth the plants but the word made is used in particular of the firmament and the luminaries verse 7 the firmament the luminaries in verse 16 the animals in verse 25 and man in verse 27 the word create which is the word and I, I really skipped over it too quickly in Genesis 1.1 1, 1, the other thing I should have said when it said God created that is a very special word in the Hebrew language when it's used of God as a subject, it always refers to supernatural acts and it never has uh, the, the subject matter, the matter of that which uh, uh, he's going to work with. But it's used in particular uh, with the uh, fish and fowl uh, and then, of course, of man. So in 121 and in verse 27. Now, there's a very good reason for that. You understand the importance of that word, supernatural act of God, the initial work of creation described by that word, the first animate beings described by that word, and then man, the uniqueness of all God's creatures described by that word. But the words work together simply to show us that as God is speaking, He's creating, He's making, He's generating. He is separating. Now, the creative um, work of God then uh, 
teaches us the uniqueness of origins. You see, you look at these eight acts, and you, they're, they're in a class by themselves. That's the only thing that is parallel is the, the work of redemption and its application. And so, if we recognize the uniqueness of the work of creation through the word and the act, we then ought to understand that there's not going to be scientific answers to what's going on here. Because God is a class of one, the work of creation, so to speak, is a class of one. Now, second, we have a declaration of fulfillment. Again, I mean, God is driving this home. And so, uh, with each creative word and act is a declaration. Verse 3, and there was light. Doesn't leave it to any imagination, does he? Verse uh, 7, 9, 11, 15, and 24. And so it was so. Firmament, day 2. Dry land, day 3. Vegetation, day 3. Luminaries, day 4. Animals, um, including man, uh, are the animals before man. Um, and it was so. We don't find that it was so when the verb barrage used create. Because that verb is so powerful in its meaning, it includes it was so. If God created, and we're going to look at that word, Lord willing, Sunday morning in Sunday school, if God created, it was so. So God is plowing through this, showing us then that uh, He. It happened exactly as he intended. This teaches the completion and the maturity of creation. This is why there can be no macro evolution. Because God had these eight classifications. God said that there be, God did a creative act. And then God says, it was so. And of course he gives the big it was so in Genesis 2.1, doesn't he? That God kept Sabbath because he completed the work of the creation of the heavens, the earth, and their host. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their host. So, and I say macroevolution, and we have to do that because people play games now, and they talk about, well, of course, evolution, because you can see the development of a, of a pony to a horse or whatever. And that's not what evolution means. But because they use that, we recognize we don't deny the development within a species. I get a new word on my phone every day from the dictionary thing, and the word came up last week, geek. You know what a geek is? You know what a geek is? Not a geek. A geek? Thank you. Got an animal hovering man back there. It's the result of the breeding of a goat and sheep. They can cross-breed. Ducks, swans, and geese can cross-breed. You know, Noah didn't have any problem on the ark. He didn't take on five different kinds of horses, he had a pair of horses, out of which 
all the other types of horses in God's providence have developed. That's not evolution. And so don't let a scientist uh, in the classroom say, well, honestly, all know there's evolution because look at the development of the species. Now, in fact, Genesis is very clear that God created them according to their kinds. Now, we don't know exactly what kinds are. Some of the scientists, believing scientists, thinks that the whole uh, DNA map will eventually help us discover the kinds of Genesis chapter 1. I don't know. But I do know that there's no can't be according to the account because it was so. It was complete. And this explains the second problem. It was mature. One of the things we'll see tomorrow morning that day age people say, well, God wouldn't be deceptive and if God has this uh, grown tree here that uh, would have taken 50 years to develop, was he trying to trick us? Well, how else can God make by fiat a tree that's not complete, if it's so? And so the things he brought into existence were mature. And not just mature, because he's the God of order, and you can't separate creation from providence, they probably would have had a record that is God's going to cause trees to develop in a certain way. There's nothing deceptive that God, by his word, makes a tree that has rings that it shows it's 50 years old, because it's a mature tree. We don't know. We haven't seen him. But it's mature. And that's so there's no deception when our things are made. How else could God make things by his word and they be so if they weren't mature? All right. Next is the statement of purpose. Again, God wants us to understand that he created with purpose. And he expresses that purpose three ways in Genesis chapter 1. Part of our structure. Some things are named. So the light's called day, the dark is called night, day one. He calls the firmament heaven. He calls the dry land earth and the water sea. And very important, later he'll use the fish of the sea. He has appointed this as the place of habitation. And he left it to man to name the animals. Which again shows us the very unique place of man in the whole order. Um, And so man was given the responsibility to name animals. Now the second way that God makes a statement of purpose is with purpose statements. And so he gives us the purpose of the heavenly bodies in 14 through 18. He states the purpose of the plants in 29 and uh, through 30. And then the purpose of man is stated... Uh, to uh, multiply, to fill the earth, to have dominion over it in verse 28. Now the third way in the chapter, the structure, that God would make a statement of purpose is by blessing. Now this is very important to grasp here because it explains something about the Sabbath. When God blessed these things, he gave them purpose and the ability to fulfill that purpose. And so he blessed animals. When we think about God blessing animals, but we're told in verse 22, he blessed the fish and the fowl. What was he doing? He was giving them their purpose and he was building into 
their system, that which we would call instinct, that would enable them to fulfill the purposes for which you created them. So all those inexplicable things like migration were built by God by His blessing, as well as procreation. All of that was given by God to the the living beings as He blessed them. This helps us understand what He did to the seventh day when He blessed it, you see. He was given a purpose and saying... When it's by faith used according to that purpose, it's going to be a blessing. And that's what Jesus had in mind when he said that the Sabbath wasn't made for, man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for man. It's a blessing. And that blessing spelled out, for example, in Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. And so we've got, uh, uh, and then the blessing on man, so he could be enabled by God to fulfill his purposes. Now here, The structure then teaches us that there's order and balance in the creation. Again, it wasn't haphazard. And the order is very important, as well as it teaches us the uniqueness of man. And then, and perhaps the most remarkable, is the expression of delight. God is not an ascetic. He doesn't want us to be ascetics either. God made these material things and he took pleasure in them. You young people probably have never seen the great film Chariots of Fire and I would encourage you between exams or something to rent it and look at it. But uh, uh, There's a great line in there where Eric Liddell's sister is talking to him about uh, why he runs. He was an Olympic runner who wouldn't run on the Sabbath and could not run in the uh, discipline he was trained in so he ran in something else that he wasn't trained in fell down and still won the gold medal went on as, and died as a missionary in China but she asked him and he says when I run God takes pleasure see God takes pleasure and that's what he teaches us here with this remarkable thing it was good it was good This shows us again its completion, its maturity, its consistency with the purpose for which he made it and he took pleasure in it. And then of course that was with light, earth and sea, vegetation, the luminaries. Now it's interesting, day two he doesn't say it was good. Which is going to be a very important argument when we look at one of the attacks on the chronological order. Why wasn't the firmament good? Because it wasn't made to be vacant. It was made to have luminaries. And so he would not declare the heavens good until he inhabited them with their luminaries. But everything else was good. The fish and fowl, the animals, and then at the end of the chapter, it was all very good. You have a very good God, don't you? Lovely and lovable. He delights in doing good to his people. And he gives us things to enjoy. Now the last part, number five, is the record of time. Now I want to show you here that God left no stone unturned. There's no way, particularly a Hebrew reader, could have read Genesis chapter 1 and not believed 
in a chronologically ordered normal day creation. And look at what links God goes to to communicate that. The day, each day was numbered with the refrain, it was evening and it was morning. Verses 5, 8, 13, 19, 23, and 31. Now you all know that. Each day was numbered with an ordinal number, and I'll explain more of that in a moment, and with this hinge of evening and morning. Now, the slideshow is over, but the lecture is not quite over. It should be, but we'll quickly do this. I just want to tell you about this Hebrew word, yom. Spell it in English, Y-O-M. It's not some Middle Eastern meditation. Yom. No. It's the Hebrew word for day, yom. Y-O-M. And we'll see... And almost every one of the creators of the non-literal views will say, well, Yom is so obscure and it can mean an indefinitely long period of time. Ain't so. A liberal commentator by the name of Skinner, who was no friend of biblical orthodoxy, but was a brilliant Hebrew scholar, He was no friend of six-day creation. This is what he said. The interpretation of Yom as Eon, a favorite resource of the harmonists of science and revelation, that's those that try to make Genesis 1 fit patterns of evolution. That interpretation is opposed to the plain sense of the passage and has no warrant in Hebrew usage, not even in Psalm 90 verse 4. It is true that the conception of successive creative periods extending over vast spaces of time is found in other cosmogenies, but it springs in part from views of the world which are foreign to the Old Testament. And again, that's one of the new fancy ways of getting around all of this, where we've got all these other cosmogenies. And here's a guy, before that was a popular resource, says that's a bunch of bunk too. To introduce the idea here, not only destroys the analogy on which the sanction of the Sabbath rest, but misconceives the character of the priestly codes. He didn't accept the, the nature of Scripture. If the writer had eons in his mind, he would hardly have missed the opportunity of stating how many millennia each embraced. Now that is a liberal, no friend of orthodoxy or of creation. Well, quickly... Why do I say it's a bunch of bunk? Why did he say it? Well, in the first place, the word yom in the Hebrew, the default meaning is. In other words, if you were a Hebrew and you were reading the word yom, it had a very basic meaning. It was either a period of daylight or a 24-hour day. I mean, when you hear day to day, what you do today? What's the default meaning? Today. Right? September the 26th. Not this month. Not this school term. 
Just as day means day in the English language, yom meant day in the Hebrew language, and it's used invariably that way. Every time it's used by itself, that is the default meaning. Second, the non-literal uses are always demanded by the context and the grammar. One of the things I like to throw at us is chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. So you look, he says, obviously, doesn't mean a literal day. Well, the preposition in, in Hebrew is ba. Bayom means in the day. In the day is an idiom that means when. And it's used that way throughout Scripture. No Hebrew reader reading Bayom would have thought, oh, well, now he's contradicted himself and he's saying that uh, uh, day encompasses the whole time period of creation. And there are other ways that it's used as an idiom. There's the plural, days. Uh, and in those instances, it still refers to a discrete period of time. The days of King David. That wasn't any long and definite period of time. We know that he reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem, right? The days of David are still fairly discreetly defined. And so when you have these other terms, um, the idiom is clear. Or in Proverbs, like cold of snow in the time, and really that is the day of harvest. Now harvest, yes, might take place over four weeks, but it's still a very distinct period of time. You know exactly what the word means when it's used in that way. Well, what about Psalm 90 verse 4? which is the favorite uh, red herring of a non-literalist. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday, that means the 25th of September, when it passes by, or Second Peter 3.8. Do you want this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day? Now, it's absolutely impossible to interpret day in either one of these passages as an indefinitely long period of time. Because if you did, you would have no contrast. You'd have no figure of speech. It would be saying that as an indefinite period of time with the Lord, so was a thousand years, and a thousand years is an indefinite period of time. Only because day meant a 24-hour period is there any advantage to the contrast. And the same in Psalm 90. That uh, God is timeless. And so with God, a thousand years is no different than our day. But he wouldn't be saying with God, a thousand years is no different than our unlimited period of time. And so the word simply cannot bear the meaning that these people try to put on it. Next, we've got the uh, use of the word yom with an ordinal number. You have cardinal numbers and ordinal numbers. The cardinal number is 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. An ordinal number is an 
a number of order. First, second, third, fourth, and fifth. When the ordinal number is used with yom, it always means a specific day as it's used by Moses in the Pentateuch. And in the Pentateuch, it always means a normal day. So the word expresses both order and it expresses the length of time that it is a normal day. In the Pentateuch, Moses used the order number with Yom 119 times. Each usage indicates a literal day. And each involves sequence as well. The only possible exception would be the seventh day of Genesis uh, chapter uh, 2. But there's no reason not to take the seventh day. Not only is the seventh in order, but also we'll come back to that tomorrow as a normal period of time. And then the fourth time factor that we have here, or argument for it, is this phrase, evening and morning. Now what does that mean? And there was day one. Simply saying that there was a period of daylight and a period of darkness. This is not some Hebrew way of reckoning time. This simply says that after the period of daylight, it was evening and then there was morning. And the first day was finished when the night was over. That's when our day is finished too, isn't it? Moses, in fact, uses this uh, uh, expression evening and morning three other times in his writings Every one of them simply means night. Twice, referring to the priest's responsibility to keep the lamps trimmed during the night. And once the Shekinah cloud was over the camp from evening into morning. It meant night. And so the time indicators, you see, are not ambiguous. There's no way that a natural Hebrew reader would have read Genesis 1 in any other way. But we have an account here of a supernatural, literal, six orderly, normal day creation. And in fact, there's no other way to read the English either. I was teaching one time an older group at a church and I said, I want you to come back next Wednesday night. I want you to read Genesis chapter 1 and I want you to come back and tell me what those words mean to you. There's no other way to take them. That's what we'll pick up then tomorrow morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your Spirit who gave us your Word and who helps us understand it. A lot of material. We pray you help us to digest it and remember it. We thank you for this foundation that our faith is based upon the sure Word of God. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen.